Hey everyone, this is Ryan Vandehei, and this is the MH65 Division podcast coming to you from ATC Mobile. The other hosts that you'll hear on the podcast are Sam Haffensteiner and Nate Shakespeare. Over the next few weeks and months, hopefully you'll hear a lot of great interviews, some excellent stories, a couple of DFCs, a couple of hurricanes. The fleet's doing a lot of great work lately, and we just wanted to highlight that. I want to bring you this podcast to get everybody to laugh a little bit and enjoy what we do because we've got a pretty sweet job. And if you have any stories, if you have anything that your community, that your unit is doing, reach out to us. Let us know what we can do because this podcast isn't for us. This is for you guys. And so we hope you enjoy it. And I've got here Commander Walton, uh, the command safety officer here at ATC Mobile, Tell us a little bit about stories and why they're important. Thanks for having us on, Ryan. And this wanted just to touch on like the genesis of how this kind of came to be with a conversation that Ryan and I had. And it was one of those things where I strongly believe that aviation is still a community of oral traditions and that we still have that brave few that go out on the hunt and they come back and they sit around the campfire and tell the story of the hunt. And we we all learn and grow and and take those tools from what that uh, crew tells us about the story. And for generations for aviation, the campfire has just been the easy button. It's just been a, a bar with cheaper free beer and, and we sit around it and we drink beer and, and stories just flow. But under these times of COVID and even there's been, uh, there's a cultural change uh, too with, with the workforce dynamic and, and the bar is not necessarily the campfire that it, that it used to be or it may be, may be snuffed out at the moment with, with COVID. And so what does that campfire look like? And I was just having that discussion with, with Ryan and Ryan just without hesitation looks at me and says, well, it's a podcast. Like, Guys are driving to work. They're listening to that, and especially during this time. And so, this is a great. This is this is against maybe you know. Hopefully, this can has legs beyond COVID. But uh, this is our de facto campfire at the moment on how we're going to sit around and, and tell these stories. And like I said, Ryan's got some phenomenal SAR cases that are going to be be told. And and science is pretty amazing about that. As far as when when someone tells you a story and when it applies to you, they have brain scans and MRIs that show that your your brain waves light up in a way that is far, far beyond reading a technical manual or reading procedures. Like you make connections, they, things synthesize and they stick and there's a stickiness to that story that helps you to take that, you know, for the long run as well. And so again, I think that this may be one of those things that, that COVID may be forced, but I think it may be a good thing that hopefully goes on in perpetuity for our community. Well put. And uh, ATC, usually when they show up, it's about giving check rides and handing out tests. This is This is not about that. This is few guys, few pilots sitting around talking about things that we love. We're talking about the art of SAR. We're talking about the art of being a pilot. And uh, this podcast is to bring that to you. And we have great technology so we can host you and hear your stories from you. So let us know. Reach out. Good afternoon, 65 Flyers, and a hearty welcome to the first inaugural episode of ATC Mobile's Flight Suit Friday, a podcast dedicated to 65 Flyers drivers, maintainers, and all the good works they're doing out in the fleet. I am Sam Haffensteiner. With me is Nate Shakespeare. Just call him Shakes, our resident uh, mobile expert. Uh, today, we'll be discussing buying down risk. Uh, special guest will be Commander Ben Walton, the uh, ATC Mobile's Command Safety Officer, and our very own Division Chief, the one and only Commander Scott Sanborn. Whoa, Sam, we're bringing out the big guns today. Definitely seems like a sustainable method of podcasting right there. 
Yeah, our producer, Ryan Vandehei, has got a whole bunch of harebrained schemes up for us, so 100% not sustainable. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. Anyway, first segment of the day is called Shoutouts. Uh, we're going to use this time to highlight all the good stuff you're doing out there in the fleet. Cases, bus, general flying, uh, fun stories, bad stories, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, please feel free to share that with us uh, whenever you can. And we'll start off the podcast with giving a shout out to uh, Hitron. They managed to stop a drug runner, but also somehow picked up a monkey in the middle of the Caribbean. Not sure what that's about. Do you think they hoisted the monkey? That's a good question. Do those guys know how to hoist? They don't know how to hoist. Yeah, I don't think so. Man, I'd love to see what happened when they came back to the ship with that thing. Like, you just put that thing in the paint locker? Yeah, like, do you have monkey watch? Like, what kind of monkey was it? I didn't know what kind of monkey it was. Who did this? How big was it? Yeah, where it stayed. Was it in... Where is it now? Yeah. I have no idea. Seems like a first-class birthing problem. I don't yeah. Know. Anyways, uh, great job, Hitron. Uh, into the SAR side of the house, uh, Air Station Houston had a recent save just before Hurricane Delta made landfall in uh, over Lake Charles area. Um, Matt Kruger, Miranda Fay, believe they went outside of Freeport, Texas, picked up two POB off a sailboat. Uh, I think it's the Irish uh, Eyes, if I'm not mistaken. Um Great, great uh, rescue over there, especially with some pretty crappy weather coming their way and some good sea state. So nice work, Houston. Good job. Racking up those echo rescues. Love it. I know. It's good stuff. All right. And that's enough for that uh, introduction for our shout outs for today. Again, just uh, putting a plug out there. If you guys have a great case, story, or anything you'd like to share on the podcast, please get with us. Uh, Sam Haffenstein or Nate Shakespeare, Ryan Vandehei. Shoot us an email. Give us a phone call. Love to hear from you. Hey, that sound right there was my cue to give you some news and notes for the fleet. Here we quickly digest some news coming out of ATC. Oh, okay, I get the song now, Ryan. That's smart. <laughs> uh, we'll bring you the most relevant information uh, we can. In Mobile, the echo transition's well underway. We're done uh, Houston about two-thirds of the way through Miami. It's going as well as uh, right. just about 2020. Is. I would say it's going, yeah. Yeah. Now, we're uh, we're getting back on track after having uh, been hit here by Hurricane Sally. Pretty excited to see uh, Port Angeles and then Barbers here in the next couple of months. Yeah, that's fantastic. And on the Delta side of the house, we got uh, a new Dash 1. It's ready for print. I don't have the exact details on where it is right now. We'll get more details for the next episode. But that one's coming down the pipe, so look out for the new Dash 1 And in addition to... Uh, uh, SAR TTP with a lot of good info on on how we've been doing SAR and just kind of putting in one spot. So we'll keep giving you guys uh, good updates here. Uh, what's coming out of ATC Mobile? I haven't been able to do any of these, but I heard the uh, we're interacting with the fleet again, kind of isolated a little bit over in Echo Land. But uh, I believe stand checks and P courses are starting back up. Is that right? Sam? That is correct. Yeah, Seven uh, Eleven gave the green light go ahead. We started all our P courses back uh, full speed October first and stand visits as well. Uh, personally, I just went on Atlantic City. Uh, shout out to the crew there. You guys did an awesome job. It was, it was fantastic, and thanks for letting me fly with you. And we've done Atlantic City. We've done Kodiak, and Corpus is next uh, on our on our list. So looking okay. forward to seeing you guys. I think we're headed out to Houston for the first Echo Stand visit as well in, uh, right. in December. So and Fantastic. Uh, I'll be shifting to uh, an interesting topic that we wanted to discuss today called buying down risk, uh, especially in these uh, interesting times uh, with COVID and the restrictions on flying and, and training that we found ourselves in. 
with us today, Commander Ben Walton. Welcome, sir. A uh, MH-65 pilot extraordinaire and our command safety officer here at ATC Mobile. Thanks for having me. I uh, don't know about the extraordinaire part, but yeah. Well, Ooh. well, well I guess we'll see after this conversation, sir. No, uh, and our other guest, uh, Commander Scott Sanborn. Thanks for uh, being here, sir. Our ATC Mobile 65 Division Chief. Welcome, sir. Happy to be here. Great. Well, I got uh, my co-host here, uh, Ryan Vandehei. We'll just kind of run down a list of questions we have, and it's really just a, a discussion because I know the two of you have been flying uh, and uh, operating both here in Mobile and out in the fleet for a long time. So it's uh, really, really happy to have you guys here to discuss. Um, we'll just start with uh, you, Commander Wallen. If uh, you just don't mind telling us a little bit about your background, where you, where you been, where you at now? Yeah, so um, after flight school was first tour Atlantic City and then came down to the division, uh, second tour up to Port Angeles, third tour, and then was able to come back uh, to PA, uh, from PA down back down here to be the, the safety officer and still get into IP uh, for the division, which has just been a real privilege. So um, my bio or my uh, tours are going to sound a lot like uh, Scott Sanborn's because uh, <laughs> that's one of the jokes that we have is that we literally overlapped in Atlantic City for about uh, six months and then overlapped down here at Mobile by about a week. And then we actually didn't even get a chance to high five each other in the in the parking lot at PA. So I, I literally have followed Scott uh, every uh, every tour until we're actually finally overlapping for a full tour. That's fantastic. And how about you there, sir? So uh, after the academy, I ended up at, uh, on a ship in New Jersey and did not want to ever go back to the great state of New Jersey. <laughs> after flight school, I ended up in Atlantic City uh, against my will. But uh, it was a great first tour. It's, it's an aircraft commander factory. Got to do a lot of uh, you know different things. And then from there, I avoided NCR, came down to Mobile to uh, teach. This was by far my favorite flying tour. Loved the uh, every day of just teaching and, and getting to grow the next generation aviators. And then from there, I got my dream job of going out to Port Angeles. First set of, you know, first time I got my first choice on assignments. And really enjoyed the flying up there. It was was gorgeous. Got to do some mountain stuff, uh, cliff rescues, um, developed a training program to kind of support that, which is what we'll talk a little bit about today. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, Leaving there, I, only a couple things on my dream sheet. It was basically a division chief, uh, which was open, or uh, all the three ops jobs, uh, San Fran, PA, and, and Houston. And I uh, ended up in Houston, so I couldn't couldn't complain. Um, again, that was a great unit. I really gained a lot there uh, as a as a you know as a great place to be a chief pilot. And then from there, I I absolutely got my dream job of coming back to the division chief job a couple of years ago and getting to be stationed with Ben finally. So. That's fantastic. And and I understand you were in Houston for Hurricane Harvey. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Must have been an interesting time. Surreal. Um, oh, surreal. Got to be. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, I guess we'll start with you, sir. Uh, Commander Sanborn, if you could just tell us uh, what your definition of a proficiency bump is, because I know I've had a lot of conversations with you about those and um, I think it's a really interesting topic to discuss here. Absolutely. And of course, it's kind of what we do here at ATC Mobile, right? So your proficiency is something that you control, just like working out at the gym, doing things uh, to, to make yourself a, a more fit person. Um, you know, you might eat right, go for a, you know, a run, and then you lift weights. Those are all part of, you know, fitness. The same thing I would say, you know, and there's some young lieutenant wrote an article about this in the talent a while back called, what is your, you know, how is your fitness? But uh, it, it compared CrossFit with, with flying. And I do the same thing with flying. So you have all these different elements. There's the study prep. There's, I take a closed book test. I go to my P course, stand visit comes. Those are all things that create uh, opportunities, artificial or not, to, for me to be a better pilot. And uh, my, through my focus, through my training, through pressure of having to prep for this check ride, those all increase my proficiency. 
And so throughout the year, ideally, you would have multiple proficiency bumps just through the, the nature of our, you know, four, well, now three chuck rides a year. Um, hey, I guess you could swim sweat, you know, uh, probably for the last time. You know, small tear rolling down my nose. Oh, no, that's chlorine. <laughs> it's chlorine. Come at you. <laughs> so uh, those are all proficiency bumps and, and would keep you, you know, throughout the whole year, if those were spaced out, to be at a higher level of proficiency, you know, than if you just had a check ride, you know, once a year. Yeah. Roger that. Um, and then to you, uh, Commander Walton, so, you know, overall discussion topic today is buying down risk. So from your safety uh, background, what what's your definition of buying down risk? So and the uh, the idea is that um, I think one of the things that, that often gets lost or is the misperception is that that uh, the safest thing we can do is to is to not do those things that we might think are risky and, and the it could not be more incorrect to kind of say that the safest thing we can do is to find that find that threshold where we can train crews safely to be as prepared as possible and that. Um, uh, Pete Trotson was a CEO of Savannah and Astoria, and he came to speak at an air station I was at one time and, and mentioned that he, he thought that risk was really, if we thought about it more like energy, right? The way that, the way that the physics says energy doesn't really get created or destroyed. There's just a fixed amount of energy. And if we think of risk in that way, that we find ways to, to, to manage that risk and we take little bite-sized chunks out of risk. And rather than taking that junior aircraft commander and never letting them go out and challenging missions or never letting them kind of really get pushed. We haven't really gotten rid of any risk. We've just piled it all up down at the end so that on that really rough and stormy night when they go out with a very junior co-pilot, now they're just having to deal with this entire ball of risk that we left down here at the finish line for them. And so it can't be, can't be the absence of assuming small pieces of risk uh, as far as buying down that risk. You, you take the bite-sized chunks that you can take when you can, when you can take it and, and lean forward as hard as you can to try and get yourself to a manageable level. And again, you're never going to get all the way there. And I think this is, this, I may be jumping ahead, but this is uh, very much the way, kind of the, an analogy that, that kind of came out of a SAR case that happened to me in Port Angeles where we went out in just some terrible weather and uh, um, we were offshore at night, terrible weather, big seas. And essentially we didn't have a necessarily enough gas to, to affect the rescue. And a 47 was out there to, to be able to help us out in about 40 miles offshore, about you know, 90 miles from the unit. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening was, is we, we got the, we got the small boat kind of vectored in as best we could before we ran out of gas and had to run back to, to the boat station helipad. And after we landed at the boat station helipad, we waited about an hour for sunrise and then began to head back, back home. And, uh, it was one of those things that, you know, 14 foot seas, 40 knot winds down to almost zero visibility at best, a hundred foot ceilings and a quarter mile viz where we were. And, and the, uh, the other pilot, Jake Dorsey at the time, just said, you know, it's just strange that, that what ops boss would let us go out and, and train in those conditions? And, and the answer is none. And, and no ops boss should let you go out and train in those conditions. But in the same breath, no marathon runner ever runs a marathon until the day of the race. But every marathon runner that trains well has run 20 or 21 miles. And I think that's where we talk about a, a robust training program or one that does does their pilots justice is one that, that makes sure that they get you to mile 20 or 21. The, the last bit is on you. And there, there's pieces of that risk that we can't assume everything, but we can assume bite-sized chunks and we try to get guys to mile, mile get, get guys to mile 20, 21. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, that, it makes a lot of sense uh, to me as a, as a line pilot too, because there's going to be a case someday that I've never had the situation uh, presented to me before. And I've gotten close enough, hopefully, with whatever training program that unit has in place. So like... Like you're saying, there's kind of that maximum amount of risk uh, that we don't like to exceed during our training, but we want to bump up pretty close to 
to it in a safe manner to, to get people ready. Yeah, and the most clear way we are, I think the most clear example that, that articulates, I think, across most units in that regard is night vert surface, right? Every unit that works around cliffs has some sort of vert surface training program, but we don't let guys go out and train at night to, to cliffs. We just they said it's just not quite worth it. But those crews are going to be asked, a crew on the Pacific Northwest might tomorrow or tonight even be asked to go out and do a night vert surface hoist to save somebody who's in that spot. And that's just, you know, that's that last little bit. Hopefully we've done a great job preparing them for all the things to get them as close as we can to that finish line. But just no unit has really cracked cracked the nut as far as how to safely or if it's really worth the extra lean to, to do night vert surface training. And if I could just jump in, I think part of this, like you mentioned, Sam, is to have a bag, a tool bag of tools that you can pull out of the tool bag and say, this might work for this type of case. So I have maybe those composite pieces, right? Like I'm, I'm proficient. I do a lot of night hoisting because that's hard and it's very perishable. You know, losing that, the instrument scan, the, the you know, looking for bubbles and references. And I put that with the fact that I've done a lot of day vert surface, right? So I can pull from the tool bag and put those together. And the other piece of this, the soft skills of ORM and CRM that I'm exercising every time I go flying. And if I put myself in a different situation, you know, hey, let's try doing this hoist, um, Let's see if we can do it with a tailwind. You know, why would we do that? Well, because there may be a case where I have to do a hoist with a tailwind. And now I've, I've ORM'd it. And I've, I've thought about my, what I'm going to do if I have an engine failure. I've briefed the crew. And we've put all that together. We've exercised that CRM muscle, that ORM muscle, so that the first time we have to do that is not on a SAR case at 3 in the morning. We've, we've kind of we've worked those skills, those muscles, you know, if you will. Mm-hmm. What I like about that, too, is it's that's something that everybody can do. You mentioned, like, uh, as a line pilot, what can I do on this day and— Yes, maybe the unit has a very robust training program, but that doesn't mean that I can't make this RT1 harder or push myself a little bit in order to prepare myself and add those tools to the tool bag. So I do like that mentality as well. Yeah, and uh, so getting to uh, a little more in depth with buying down risk, Commander Sanborn, this is a question for you because you were the ops boss in uh, Houston when Hurricane Harvey hit, and I'll just throw a couple background stats, right? Harvey hit, I believe, August 25th, 2017. Uh, 27 trillion gallons of rain fell on the, the city of Houston. So it's about 50 inches of rainfall. Uh, and the National Weather Service actually had to create a different color to uh, show that rain intensity, if I remember correctly. Um, and then through your leadership, uh, the Coast Guard led 700 aircraft sorties. Uh, 1,700 people were rescued in probably one of the most extensive uh, damage, uh, damaging uh, hurricanes that this country has seen. So with that, just quick spiel about Hurricane Harvey. How did you get ready for it? Um, so to be honest, I inherited a great program um, from Captain Holzer and Captain Langham, who was the CO. Captain Langham was the CO and, and Captain Holzer was the XO at the time. And they had this mantra in Houston that aggressive, safe training saves lives. So that was in play before I even arrived in Houston. And that kind of goes back to what we talked about buying down risk. That was definitely a, a popular um, unit. It was part of the, it was part of the DNA of the, of the unit, um, part of the culture. And so every quarter we had a focus on proficiency event, which was a chance to get the entire unit together and pick a topic, whether it was confined area landings, HUD, qualls, NVG stuff, uh, ship helo. We did aerodynamics. We did uh, maintenance test flights. We, we picked a different topic every quarter, and we said, we're going to focus on this. And uh, maybe it was ESS, you know, quals for the BAs, and we're going to uh, we're gonna do something together as a unit. And, and we would get together. We would we'd clear the schedule for a couple of days or a week, and we'd say, we're going to take a closed book test as a team, um, getting ready for Stan, you know, bumping that proficiency up, you know, artificially but internally, you know, to make sure that we were ready. 
Um, we would do uh, an ORM discussion with the command. We'd throw out some scenarios, you know, and as, as crews, hey, what would you do if you rolled up on this scenario and let the crew come up with, well, what do you think about this? And the CO or I would be able to stand up and say, hey, I like how you're thinking or, hey, this is my vision on that type of scenario. This is what I would think, you know, think of these things. Again, we're not going to tell you the right answer on every of these. You know, you need to, we want to empower you to make good judgment decisions, but here's how we're thinking. This would be a win if you, if you, you know, kind of went this direction. So, we had that opportunity to do that and then train the soft skills, the ORM, the CRM, the flying skills as well for pretty much every one of these. These And so that was part of the culture. Before I even arrived in Houston, I, I talked to a Captain O'Brien. Uh, he's currently, I think, DR out in D14. And uh, he was my ops boss in in uh, Port Angeles, but he was also in uh, at the ground level of uh, Hurricane Katrina. And I said, tell me about what I need to prep. As I go into Houston, my biggest fear is that two weeks after I arrive, we got a Cat 5 rolling down on us and we're going to have that kind of situation with mass rescue. And um, he's like, hey, there's some things to think about. Have a plan, you know, get with your partners, figure out a comms plan, you know, figure out some LZs. And so that was my first priority in Houston in August was let's get a hurricane drill together, you know, and that was our first FOP. That was my first focus on proficiency was doing a hurricane drill. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charles Weitzel, who's now currently out in Barinkin, he kind of put it all together and he put, you know, some ORM packets together and it was choose your own adventure. You'd get airborne, the swimmer would open up a packet and say, okay, this is where you're going you know, go land in this LZ, pick these people up, you know, simulated, you know, and, and then this happens and then you'd open up the next envelope and, and then we would terminate all those with hoisting to a fire academy, you know, so every crew, I think it was six crews got to do hoisting, you know, live swimmer hoist to the, to the roof of the fire academy. Again, hoisting to a building is not hard. It's just different, you right. know, and hoisting at 150 feet, 125 feet is just different. And so just like in Port Angeles, when we were doing mountain training, again, we can't do night, you know, vert surface. We can't, you know, necessarily put the swimmer down on a cliff for training, you know, in an area we may not have used before for, for, maybe the risk isn't, isn't, the gain isn't worth it. But what we can do is we can put a basket down, you know, and so we'd have the swimmers hike in, they'd rope, rope themselves in, and then we would put a basket down just to give the flight mech perspective of hoisting to a cliff from 150 feet. Again, it's just different. And that really armed those, and again, it's not a qual, it was just a familiarization to buy down risk in a very measurable, you know, during the day, you know, opportunity just to, to have them have seen it at least once before they get a, a, a real case. And most crews that got cases and said that training was invaluable, just they know they had the confidence to go do it. And so that was my goal with uh, the first focus on proficiency with hurricanes was to give the crews just something, some, some sort of experience to work the ORM muscle, the CRM muscle as a crew and, uh, and we got great feedback. And so then we became something we did on a regular basis. So we would fast forward to the spring in February. Ryan McHugh was the uh, the next project officer. So, and he took this and ran with it. And he put all the partners. We got the partner agencies involved. We invited the Civil Air Patrol, the Ox. I think Corpus came up with an aircraft. We invited the Houston Police Department, uh, the uh, Department of uh, Public Safety. You know, the Sheriff's Office came out um, and, and really got all these aircraft in play at the same time to simulate the chaos of doing basically hoisting within a you know, few rotor discs of somebody else. And, uh, and that was, again, great drill. We had a chance to kind of put that together and get a plan down on paper, one page of here's our comms plan, here's our LZs, here's how we're, kind of, how we're gonna fly, get that all in you know, a document that, that we can now push out to all the partners, push it out to all the Coast Guard units. And I think that really set us up well, because we know hurricanes are coming. We just don't know, and we've seen this summer, like they all look a little different. Um, some of them slow down and, and pour a bunch of rain on some come through, you know, like a buzzsaw, like hurricane Michael and just take out, you know, a good section of Florida. So because they're all different, we just have to be kind of ready for what, what, you know, nature throws at us, but we know they're coming. 
Yeah. And that's the other thing. I, Gordon Graham's a guy that uh, speaks. He's a uh, police officer that speaks to a lot of our first responders. And one of his takeaways that all a lot of the things that he speaks at is is that a, a training program that takes itself seriously, a training program that really is worth its salt, is one that looks and says, "What is it that we might ask our people to do, or what what is, what are we going to do if?" So just like uh, you know Scott was talking about with that hurricane response. We know that these things might happen. We know that we might be asked our crews to do something like that. And and then how do we, like I said, how do we get ready for it? And that's, again, we take discretionary time. We take uh, the risk that we can mitigate and we run those scenarios down. And like you said, it's uh, the nature of soft skills in general, right? Soft skills are things like leadership and CRM and, and risk management. Those are things that you have to overtrain for. It's not just a um, job task analysis where it's like throwing a football where you just kind of do one, teach one, and now you're ready to throw a football. If you say, hey, go be safe. Well, safe looks a lot different than, than throwing a football. You say, well, it, it's kind of, it looks like this or it looks like that because it takes all these, all these different, different arrows that are in your quiver that you have to pull from at different scenarios. And so it does, you do have to train for scenarios that may never happen. And you have to put tools in your belt that you, that you may never need, but we want them all to be there so that in that really tough time, you can at least get, get something to pick from. And I'll be honest, during, during Harvey, uh, none of the LZs we picked worked because the flooding was not where we expected it. You know, based on historical data, Hurricane Ike was the Bolivar Peninsula. So we had all the LZs down there and Harvey was backwards. It was all in the city. And so we had to improvise. But the good thing was all our crews knew how to land in confined areas. Absolutely. They all knew how to land off airport and they all knew how to hoist the buildings. So I felt very confident that our crews were going to be able to do the mission safely. I couldn't speak to the crews that came in TDY. And so that's where we had to manage some risk and maybe pair some people differently and, and kind of slowly spread that out as the response grew. Yeah. Can I ask a question about, um, said aggressive safe training. Does that ever create conflict leadership? You have a command safety officer and prior ops boss. How does that relationship and how do those conversations go so that you can train aggressively, but also keep guys safe? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things, uh, a, a good story to tell would, would be would be um, the mountain flying program at Port Angeles. Essentially, Scott walked into a situation where that, that ops boss in command at the time said, we don't, we don't do it. We don't, we, uh, we're going we're gonna to call the park rangers. We're going to call the Air Force like they do in Lansar. We don't. Um, and so essentially, they kind of turned off the mountain flying program. And Scott had a couple cases and things, things started to show themselves that, that we were an asset that could help. And things could go a lot differently if, if crews were, 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 were there, were available. We can help, at least in small ways, or maybe actually even hoisting people off the side of mountains. And again, the Olympics are about five 6,000 feet tall, so we're not, we're not going nuts, but we are absolutely in a different uh, operational envelope than what we're used to. Um, so it truly had to be kind of an evidence-based approach that said, you know, we've, we've done this, or we are going to do this, uh, or we've got to just make the hard line and say, we will always say no. Um, and that Again, I think it's just not, not, not the appropriate answer, but you have to distill it down to that most pure form of alcohol with, with, uh, with the command is like, are we going to ask crews to do this? And if so, let's, let's all sleep better at night knowing that we've, we've, uh, we've armed them. And so, yeah, Scott had to take a program that was dead and, and try to bring it back to life. And he got it, I, crawl, you got to the walk stage, crawl stage? I, I would say, I mean, the so the first person I flew with was a CO. And I said, here, we, we, we got some training, you know, for all the pilots, just some great uh, mountain training program. I'd been a HATS graduate and I put together a plan to say like, this is my plan. We briefed it. And then I executed it with him to say, we can do it per the Todd card. Look, the performance numbers are there. 
And then after he saw that and he realized, okay, this is, it just has value. And again, and I said, Hey, the crews are flying in the mountains anyway, unless you prohibit us from flying in the mountains, we're, we're flying in the mountains to go to Seattle. Like it's, it's happening. So we can ignore it or we can arm our crews with some information that would make them safer. And then, yeah, we started off with a very basic crawl. I mean, the hill was probably 2000 feet, you know, that we used. And then we got to probably the walk phase of, of doing the, the hoisting in the mountains. Um, and I think toward the end, I mean, I think they're full on running yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. and then that, that, that's resulted now. And like I said, during the wintertime, the park closes to automobile traffic and the Forest Service will clear out some parking lots for us. And, and we're landing in parking lots at 5,500 feet now and, and working with the park rangers on discrete frequencies that, that are now presets in the radio. And so everything has... Uh, really, really gotten up and on plane with that program. And like I said, and it's resulted in people's, get, people's lives getting safe. They've hoisted several people out of the park um, that otherwise wouldn't have, wouldn't have been picked up. So there's some, there's some great success stories from that. But, but yeah, again, it just has to be, has to be an articulation of that very thing that, that um, we, if we are going to do this, we have to find a way to, to mitigate on the front side. Yeah, I, I had an ops boss, uh, Commander Barris, that one time told me, he's like, I want you to know how to do this and I want, know that you can do this on a Tuesday afternoon so that when it's Saturday at two in the morning, I'm not as worried about you guys. And I think we make ORM very difficult. And really ORM is as simple as going to the grocery store and, and you're looking at a, a gallon of milk saying, is this, is what I'm paying? Is it worth $5? I don't know. Maybe I should get something else, you know? And I think it's also, uh, yeah. And, and like I said, Dave Stern, boy, we've, not, we've dropped a lot of names. This has been like, a, <laughs> yeah, so Dave Stern has a great article that he wrote in Talent a few years back about uh, the most risky mission we do is and it was under the context of training. Well, a lot of our mishaps happen under training. But one of the things he pointed to is science Science has some very, very definitive research that one of the most difficult things that we air crews get themselves in trouble with is essentially a risk assessment, understanding understanding how much risk you're actually assuming, uh, being at the, you know, the $8 gallon of milk at the grocery store versus, uh, uh, versus that on-scene assessment. And the the wonderful news from that is, is that's something that can be trained. We can teach crews to get better at that. And again, that's, this is one of those things you already know this, but now it just gets science just says it back to you, maybe in a way you can't even understand it. But like, that's why we do scenario-based training. That's why we have AC boards is we put you in these situations and you say, this is how I assess this risk. And you either get your needle verified or it needs to be calibrated. Like, nope, that was actually, you're, you're assuming too much risk for this, this amount of gain. So it's, it's a muscle that we can develop just like that, that CrossFit scenario learning to manage risk and assess risk is, is a trainable skill. And Dave even had a great point about that too, is that like a lot of times when we go into a training environment, we look at the situation that may be kind of vanilla and we say, how can I make this harder, right? And this is hoisting with that tailwind and, and maybe AFCS off, or maybe we, we plan to go lost target, we'd we just use a t trail line only, you know, and not be committed or something like that, which are all good muscles to work at, but equally as valuable, right, is to plop us in there in front of somebody and do what we would do on a case where we get dealt a set of cards and we say, how would we make this easier, right? Essentially, you're kind of trying to do the inverse when you actually get on get out on a SAR case. It's like, let's look at this. What's the easiest possible way to do this on everybody? Do you think that, uh, that being able to execute additional training during your flights, uh, like we're talking about, has become more difficult with the reduction in flight hours that we've gotten this year? And, and if so, you know, what's a way that that if you guys have any suggestions on, on what we can do as a pilot to combat that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's my biggest concern right now is, is, is any mishap that happens as a result of lack of proficiency because folks can't, you know, we're just, there's not enough hours to go around. And so it just means that every hour you get needs to really count. And so uh, we've looked at obviously different options here. You know, um, I, I think a hot seat option often in Houston, for example, we run out of hours. I would say, all right, I want, I want pilots to at least be in the aircraft 
a couple times a week. I don't care how many hours you get, but I would like you to at least go get in the plane, work some checklists, do a couple of landings, do an elevated pad, pinnacle approach, do something. Even if you get it, if you get 40 minutes, 40 minutes twice a week is better than, in, you know, two hours of literally flying the beach. So yeah. I think those are the things is making every hour count. And that's on us to say, hey, maybe if I can land on the helipad that, that's, you know, 300 feet high and surrounded by wires, I can probably hit a no hover landing on the numbers of the runway. So maybe I focus, shift my focus there, you know, is, hey, I, I don't necessarily need to warm up. Maybe, maybe a couple laps to warm up, you know, and then I'm AFCS off. Hey, give me a tail rotor. Crap, my time's up. I got to give this plane to someone else. But I think by, by, by doing little things like that, again, and start small, like, you know, like Ben was saying, hey, start with a normal hoist. And then maybe I'm going to climb up, you know, 10 feet. Hey, maybe this time I'm going to turn Havog off. Hey, maybe this time I'm going to come back down to 30 feet. I'm going to kick off some, some AFCS channels. Um, you know, crawl, walk, run that out. Um, but, but use that, those times, use those hours you have um, to get the most out of it. You know, aim small, miss small. Hey, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to a crack in the runway. I'm going to make sure my nose wheel is on this crack and then have the fly mech, you know, jump out, take a peek, you know, and I don't know, just, just some things that you can do to kind of increase that level of stress. Like again, if you go to the gym and you walk around for an hour with a five pound weight, you know, you might get sweaty. Sam might get sweaty, but, but a lot of us, you know, you know, probably not going to work us over too well. Right. So again, I don't want to get on there and just start squatting 500 pounds. I want to warm up, but I also want to get, you make my time valuable in the gym and do something that's going to stress myself a little bit. Well, not all of us run marathons and stuff. And we also need to be brave enough to, to look at a flight schedule and a flight hour disbursement and say, and say, yeah, you're a junior pilot. You need more flight time. We don't just need to say, yeah, everybody gets 15 hours, right? There are, third and fourth tour pilots out there that can survive and still be excellent on a far, far less hours. And so if the flights, if the flight, monthly flight hour report does tilt way, way towards the co-pilots and they're getting 30 hours a month and some of the other guys are living off of six and seven for a month or two, then you know, it's, it's possible, right? I think, and that's, uh, we're going to hope, we're going to hope and cross our fingers that, uh, that this rate of flight time and these conditions don't don't go on uh, for, for much longer, that we're not in a marathon to say for a, in this situation, that this is something more that we're trying to just grind out until we can get on the other side of this. You know, another thing I was just thinking about is, you know, I, I may only get one approach on this flight, but I can start off coupled, right? Hey, I remember how to do that. That's the hardest part of the coupled approaches, right? Figuring out how to do it. Now I'm coupled. I don't need to watch George fly the rest of this ILS. I can say, hey, let me maybe kick off the AFCS and fly the, fly the cues for a little bit. Well, heck, let me, let me just fail that and just fly the raw data, you know, so I can do three different approaches. I'm not going to log it that way, <laughs> but, uh, but I get, I get a lot more value out of that one approach perhaps, or maybe I can say, Hey, we're going to simulate that. I have a patient in the back right now. So I have to come in here cause he's bleeding out and I need to get him to the hospital. So I'm going to come in at 120 knots. Ooh, but now I want to make sure I break out. So maybe coming through a thousand feet, 700 feet, I'm gonna start slowing back. That is a, that's a pretty, that's a good air work drill, you know, to start following an ILS all the way down to 200 feet, slowing down to 70 knots by the decision, decision height, um, and then go take it to the hospital pad. You know, like I said, you get a lot out of that. Yeah. I, mean, I think we just need a portal page with Commander Sanborn's ideas for oh, uh, yeah. good, uh, good flight. We'll just have to interview him a whole bunch of times on this show. <laughs> that's right. Um, well, I really appreciate, uh, both of you gentlemen coming in here and talking about this. Um, yeah, I've asked all my questions. You guys have anything else you want to parting shots? Parting shots for the fleet, or uh, hey, how, how do you do? Do what you do better. I'm good. Yeah, man, I wish. I wish. I wish. <laughs> hey, I feel like that was an opportunity to say something profound, but I, yeah. I missed it. So I mean, you guys have said plenty of profound things so far. Yeah, I will say this. I to quote I, Jason Gelfand. Uh, you know, one thing he said is, you know, don't don't just train till you get it right. 
train to, you can't get it wrong, you know? So again, it's a little bit more difficult now when I only have six, seven hours, maybe a month in the plane, but, um, but pick those items. I would say, like we talked about that, uh, that are the hardest things for me, you know, and, and, and spend my time working on that, knowing that that encompasses the big picture, you know? And we do know that over the, ne- for the next four or five months, like it's not going to happen in the aircraft. Like, like the hours that we've gotten, the supply issues we have and COVID, we know that we're in this boat for the next five, six months, maybe a little bit longer than that. So we have to, this is not a hold your breath kind of, uh, and we'll be better. It's, it's find, find that conduit, whether it be just sitting in the aircraft on a duty night with the, and running through, running through checklists and procedures or doing some uh, tabletop training or just some, you know, some, uh, just some scenario based training, you know, over the flight planning table to exercise those muscles. But, but yeah, the, to, to just try to gut it out with this men flight time is not necessarily something we want to ask our wardrooms to do right now either. Or nor for focus on it. You know, I think we focus on, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not proficient because I only have eight hours. You know, we all know that's not the case, right? Like there's recency, there's proficiency, then all those years of experience that you, you mentioned. Um, and so the other piece of that is, you know, crack that red book out in your duty room. And instead of just saying, hey, the bold face for this EP is this, you know, put yourself in a scenario. Hey, I'm on a medevac right now with that same guy that's bleeding out in the back. And um, I have this EP now in this location with this weather condition. And just talk through that. Grab your crew, right? You have a CRM discussion with your crew at the at the brief, you know, and say, hey, like, what would you do in this case? Work those in. And, and I think that will go a long way to, again, exercising that CRM and ORM muscle, um, even when you can't actually do it in the plane. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, uh, gentlemen, Commander Sanborn, Mary Walton, uh, really appreciate your time here today and and sharing your thoughts with the fleet. And for those pilots out there listening, uh, you know, if you guys have uh, other ideas for podcasts, you got questions for uh, some of our senior leadership here, uh, please come uh, send us an email. Send our producer an email, Ryan Vandehei. Um, Sam, I'm Sam Hafenstein. Our other uh, other host is going to be Nate Shakespeare. So, any of us, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, thank you again for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having My pleasure. Us. Have a great day. All right, folks, that wraps up our podcast for today. Thanks for uh, joining Nate and I here. Um, Got a lot of great wisdom and uh, just overall good conversation with the commanders today. So, Yeah, absolutely, Sam. Super appreciate Ryan putting this together. And again, if you think the content's boring, but you like the idea, uh, shoot Ryan Vandehei, Sam Haffensteiner, or myself an email with your good ideas. All right, looking forward to hearing you again later. Hold my handshakes. COVID.